0: My spiritual awakening is what is what got me sober. So they happened simultaneously. So a light came into the room. I was drunk or I had been drinking all night. And the light came in the room and said, it's over. It's the drinking. And from that moment, I was propelled into another whole thing. So they were simultaneous.
1: That was Dr. Jane Galloway. And this is The Share Podcast.
2: It's time for The Share Recovery Podcast where we bring you amazing life-changing success stories from addicts and alcoholics all over the world who share their inspiring journey in recovery.
1: And now, here's your host, Oh, Hey, everybody, welcome to another episode of The Share Podcast. And today, we have Dr. Jane Galloway joining us on the show. And Jane is the author of The Gateways, The Wisdom of 12-Step Spirituality. Now, in this episode, we take a few... Different twists and turns as far as the interview format goes, because there's a lot of topics to touch on, especially when it comes to spirituality. There's so many avenues for connecting with your higher power. And for many of us, we were raised to believe that there was only one spiritual path to connect us with our higher power, whether that be through religion or whether it be through some sort of spiritual practice. And Jane's purpose for writing the book is to springboard from the completion of the 12 steps in whatever 12-step fellowship you're a part of, and then enhancing your understanding of the 11th step. It's a fascinating interview, we had a lot of fun doing it. So let's dive into Dr. Jane's story, but first, if you have not yet rated and reviewed the Share podcast. Please, one of the best ways to help support the show is to go to iTunes, leave us a 5-star rating and a review, and that helps catapult us up the ratings on iTunes, which will make it easier for more and more people to find the Share podcast. Now, in the past many of you have asked, "Hey, oh, how can I help support the show?" Well, I'm going to keep it simple for you. The first way is by donating via PayPal or Bitcoin. And of course, I want to thank all of our listeners who have been generously donating every month to The Share Podcast. Make no mistake about it, you guys are making a huge difference. But again, we can always use more, and now you can even send us donations using Bitcoin. So if you go to the website, www.thesharepodcast.com, On the top right corner, there's a donate button. Click on that button and it'll take you to the page where you can donate either by PayPal or by Bitcoin. On a weekly basis, I have over 5,000 listeners every week who listen to the Share Podcast. So if 100 of you guys would send me $5 a month or more, there are a few listeners that are sending 10 20 and even $50 every month that would completely support the show from beginning to end. So for those of you who have the wherewithal to send me $5, either by PayPal or by Bitcoin, then by all means, please feel free to donate now. We could really use the support. Also, when you're purchasing stuff on Amazon, there are those of you that are still clicking on the Amazon link on the Share Podcast website before doing their purchases on Amazon. But again, there are thousands of you listening. If each and every one of you could just remember to go to the Share website, click on the Amazon button before you do your shopping, that is also going to make a tremendous difference for us financially. So I haven't been one to emphasize it in the past, right? But now we've got a solid listener base. I know you guys love the show. I know you guys get a lot out of it. There are those of you, just like in the meetings, that are newcomers, The money's tight keep listening. The show will always be for free. The Share Podcast Private Accountability Group will always be for free. But for those of you who can, kick in a couple of bucks. Help us out here. And not to forget the Share Podcast Private Accountability Group. Again, it's growing like crazy. Guys, go to the Share Podcast, www.thesharepodcast. Click on the button that says join the Facebook private group. For those of you that are in the Private Accountability Group, you know how vital and important that has become. There's over 1,500 members in there. If you don't want to go to meetings, if you have problems connecting with people, if you need something more than just the podcasts and are not ready to cross over into meetings or some other structured program, then the Private Accountability Group is perfect for you. Jump in there, make comments, ask questions, or just read the posts. There are so many people out there that have the same questions that you have all you have to do is just read those and then read all the follow-up answers and responses that come. And make sure to subscribe to my weekly newsletter so you know every single time a brand new episode is launched. And of course, if you have any questions, just email me, o at sharepodcast.com, and I'll get back to you as soon as possible. So now a quick message from our sponsors, and then on to the show. <laughs> Would you like to join a free anonymous online group that offers a daily topic email with popular recovery resources accompanied by a secret Facebook group for discussion? Then go to dailyaaemails.com for more information about Transitions Daily. And don't forget to share dailyaaemails.com with friends, in meetings, and with sponsees in recovery. Sober Nation is the largest online recovery community and treatment resource center. They provide treatment resources to those struggling with addiction, as well as to the family members who are caught in the crossfire. On top of that, Sober Nation is a huge community of good people who share their experience with each other. They have informative content, recovery and addiction news, as well as an entire clothing line, which helps expand the culture of recovery. They can easily be found at www.sobernation.com. Sobernation.com. Sobernation sober nation is putting recovery on the map hi jane thanks for joining us
0: hey thanks for having me
1: i'm excited to have you on the show today how are you feeling
0: Great. I'm feeling great. I'm feeling great. I'm happy to be on the show. I'm uh, interested to have a conversation with somebody in Costa Rica.
1: (laughs) Well, good. Mission accomplished. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So, folks, today we have Jane Galloway joining us on the Share Podcast, and Reverend Dr. Jane Galloway, who has over 30 years experience with the 12 Steps and extensive experience serving as a minister, community leader, and advocate of the arts all in addition to her accomplished career as a huge screen actor, has now become the leader of a 12-step spiritual revolution. Her book, The Gateways, The Wisdom of 12-Step Spirituality, is a powerful collection of spiritual practices and rituals designed to augment the transformative work begun in recovery. Jane's understanding of the 12 steps is a spiritual path, along with her commitment to serving all who seek recovery through the steps who are ready to reap the full spiritual, mental, emotional, and physical benefits of recovery. Did I get that about right?
0: Yeah, fantastic. (laughs)
1: Okay, cool. (laughs) You
0: just made that up, right?
1: (laughs) (laughs) Totally. It just came. (laughs) Look at how well we're connected here. (laughs)
0: Right. (laughs) All
1: right, so we've got a lot to cover because there's a lot of facets of, of your book that are very fascinating and how it all intertwines with with 12-step recovery. So, um, what does your... Let's start off with what you do regularly. What's your normal daily routine look like, including recovery?
0: Well, now I have been working on <laughs> publicity for my book and working with various community efforts in California where I live. But my for 15 years, I actively led spiritual centers. So... Um, I kind of took a break at the end of my last spiritual center because I had been begun writing the book and I really, really wanted to focus on that because I felt that was the next level of my teaching. So I was in New York city. Um, I, I was doing a bi-coastal, uh, kind of a thing, which is really how I love, uh, kind of functioning as I was an actor for many years and actors are New York, LA denizens of New York and LA very frequently. So just being in one place wasn't suiting me, but um, I ended up being in New York for four years uh, leading a spiritual center and also beginning the book. So now what I'm doing is really working on the book and, um, and beginning doing some seminars, workshops, podcasts, various things to really promote the ideas and the teaching behind the gateways. So daily, that's what I'm doing. I'm talking to you.
1: <laughs> okay. All right. So how do you maintain your your recovery program? Do you still go to meetings? Do you have yeah. a sponsor? I mean, like, how does that fit into your routine?
0: Had, it's interesting. I've had two sponsors over. I've been sober for, uh, you know, a long time. I don't usually love to talk about, quote, being sober because I really believe in the, it's good to, for people to hear it, though. I have been... Uh, my sobriety date, which a lot of people give, but was uh, was and remains uh, December twelfth, nineteen seventy eight. So that's before a lot of people were born. Uh, you can do the math. But but I, really, I do believe in the anonymity idea, not in terms of like I don't want anybody to know I'm sober because that's you know a huge part of who I am. But because the reason people miss that a lot, the the real anonymity thing. Has to do with uh, humility. It has to do with you know. This is about a print a program and about something that works that's bigger than me. It's beyond my personality. And if I start saying, "Oh yeah, I mean, I've been sober and doing all this stuff," and then I drink or use, I jeopardize the validity or the you know the possible life changing power of the program in someone's life. It's not about me. So. Um, so I try to walk that line of the anonymity thing and so if you notice on my PR it says I've I've lived and worked the 12 steps for over 3 decades I've really had to clarify that a lot of times uh, with people who are writing different different things, because it's not really about because it's funny. I don't know. I know you have dealt with a million people who are in recovery. So it's so funny because people say, oh, well, I've been sober for the." Oh, good for you. No, not good for me. I mean, it's so condescending and weird the way people even (laughs) write. Oh, good for you. Well, let's see. I would have totally died if I hadn't had this miraculous transformation, which actually led me into this whole other dimension of my life. So it's not good for me. I didn't get sober because I was a good, moral little – I get, I crawled into my first AA meeting. Um, and so, I, I, you know, it's not good for me. It's. It has been good for me, but it wasn't, you know, that kind of thing. So just – So in answer to this, I've had two sponsors over these many, many years um, whom I adored. And my first sponsor, Sheila, worked through all of the steps with me. And we were very close for about 15 years. Sheila, sadly, uh, stopped stopped really relating to the program. And it really broke my heart because uh, I watched her. I watched a terrible example of what happens to people when they uh, don't treat certain elements of their illness. And she was diabetic. She was she was really having terrible uh, emotional problems and depression. And uh, Sheila ended up dying. um, Not a great death. Okay, so I had that example.
1: Did she relapse?
0: You know, I don't even know if she relapsed. I mean, what she did was uh, so I she her in, in terms of her thinking, they say the relapse begins before you pick up the drink or drug. Yes, she definitely did. But I don't know. She moved back to New York from California, ended up doing many, many shock treatments she was having real trouble with her diabetes, with her pancreas. So it it really is kind of a moot point whether she actually took a drink or a drug. I know she was on antidepressants and whatever they were doing. I mean, her insulin was off, all these things were off. And I don't really know the answer to that. Her thinking certainly became, she became very hostile to the 12-step program and this thing that had given her such a wonderful life. But you know, as we, I, anybody who knows the big book knows that Epi, who was Bill Wilson's uh, Eskimo, as we call it, or, you know, first sponsor, et cetera. I, I think Epi finally did die sober, but he, you know, he relapsed. So, right, um, right. so people reach a handout to us and, uh, it's a miracle. And many times they don't, you know, end up staying sober, but uh then i had a wonderful sponsor in long beach california for tw- over 20 years and she and and she died and she died sober and she died you know it was a it was really a fantastic relationship um and actually i had a wonderful long lunch the other day with another one of her sponsees who was kind of a sister uh you know in that regard although she has many fewer years of sobriety than i do so you know so now i'm at a point where <laughs> First of all, I have a couple of feelings about this. One thing is I've been sober longer than most people I know. And so if you want what we have and are willing to go to any lengths to get it, uh, I don't want what a lot of people have. However, I do talk to people with what I consider to be really good, solid uh, sobriety frequently. And uh don't ever take it for granted that I, uh, that I need to remember the ism of my of my addictive uh, experience. And the second thing is, I think there has grown up sort of a fundamentalism within the twelve step programs, the cult of sponsorship and sort of my sponsor, my grand sponsor. no person is our higher power. And uh, I was fortunate enough to attend uh, Cypress College in Southern California to receive my alcohol and drug credentialing, at my alcohol and drug education credentialing um, a certification program and really learned from fantastic people the physiological effects of alcohol and drugs, the counseling the family of addicted persons, many different aspects of, of addiction. And the head of that department, Dr. Lucinda Alibrandi was a real iconoclast, and she was she had been sober many many years, way longer than I had. And she said, "Listen, all this stuff is folklore. All this stuff about you how you have to do this it's like it's like a you don't step on a crack, you break your mother's back kind of, <laughs> kind of thing. If you don't have a sponsor if you're not on this step." She said, "It's all excuse me, but BS." She said, "It is." She said, "Read the original literature, and in it you will see." What they actually say, and none of this is in there. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I find it to be a very. I attend uh, actually Al-Anon. You know, in New York, I got sober in New York City. Initially, they say a lot. They say, um, you know, AA gave me back my life. Al-Anon taught me how to live it. So, so it's another element of working the steps, but. Uh, so, but it concerns me that there has grown up to be kind of a cult of sponsorship within the program and, uh, it concerns me. So yes, I go to meetings. Um, I go to meetings. I never go, um, you know, I'd say I never go a month without going to at least one meeting. Um, sometimes I go to two or three meetings a week. My friend, a lot of my friends are in the program. Um, my website is JaneGalloway.com. And on it, I talk about this. I talk about get off the bridge. And I had a wonderful therapist in my early sobriety who really also encouraged us, just like my professor did in California. She said, she used to, you know, she said, AA is a bridge back to life, but too many people bring their sleeping bag and their camping gear and move on to the bridge and never get off it. A bridge back to life? Okay, get off the bridge. If you've been sober for a period of time, have worked the steps, have internalized this process, so then my work, then then get off the bridge, get back to life. And my wonderful alcoholism counselor, when I was very newly sober, used to ask our group therapy, how many meetings do you guys go to a week? And I would dutifully say, you know, five a week or seven a week or something. She said, you're all going to too many meetings. Why aren't you going to the theater? Why aren't you making some friends, some sober friends? Why aren't you getting a life? And she really pushed us out of the nest. And uh, that's what I see not happening in, in AA, and it concerns me.
1: Well, th- there is, there's so much debate on that, on that particular topic. And, you know, I've had many interviewees where the discussion has been just about uh, how people get pushed out of the meetings more than pulled in just by the rigidity of, of the Amen. fellowship yeah. and what they're, again, it's all conceptualized. It's almost, it's almost like the Bible or like religion. There's interpretations. When you become too rigid in your belief system, you know, that's when that's when the ego actually starts to take more of a role in, in your decision-making than actually being what it's supposed to be or what the intention is, is a service-oriented right. uh, fellowship. I mean, the 12th step, that's what it's all about, getting to the 12th step yep. and giving back what was freely given. Yep, yep listen the, I, there's um even here there's the cult of the sponsorship and uh my sponsor and my grand sponsor and yeah that's been a turn off to to certain people i, I you know i'm very open minded when it comes to the flexibility of choosing of your own choice and how you know to you know leave you know take what you want leave the rest kind of a thing i go to aa meetings i go to na meetings i started an na i had an na sponsor then I, you know i i i picked an aa sponsor So there there was a lot of criticism to, you know, for me, it was like, hey, you know, what are you, A, N, A, what, you know, what's the deal? And, you know, oh, you're leaving your fellowship, stuff like that. And I was like, wow, guys, you guys are taking this thing way too seriously. I mean, seriously, get a life. Uh, So there was a point in my life as well where that came into play, where looking at the 12 steps as a basic building block, a foundation for my recovery, paramount, absolutely, no question about it. When somebody comes to me and and they want to get clean or they have questions about you know how do I do this or how do I do that or how do I how do I find you know recovery I have there's a basic formula there's a basic model I don't change it it's what was taught to me and I think that that is paramount in early recovery but you know somebody who's got thirty years
0: <laughs> you know? I have actually thirty eight years
1: okay somebody has got coming up on forty years yeah. <laughs> right. Uh yeah, I mean there there came a point where I think 5 years into my recovery, I was like the I was I think I was chairing two meetings a week. I had four sponsees and I was a GSR. I didn't have a life. So I started to get resentful actually because I would watch my other guy uh, my other buddies show up to the meetings. They didn't have any service commitments and I remember going, "Why am I taking on everything because nobody else wants to step up?"
0: Well, I get see that that ends up to be a whole kind of thinking too, though. Who it doesn't have anything to do with them. I think I would stop the question at why am I taking on everything and what am I avoiding? It's not about them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's true. Whether they do it or don't do it, we get into these kind of like petty things. Look, if you are sober, if you think about a recovery program, if you have cancer and you are diagnosed, you go in for chemotherapy, you go in for radiation, you do a lot of treatment, a lot of holistic stuff, and they say. Five years later, you are cancer free. Do you continue five years after that and 10 years after that to go back and take the same chemotherapy? No, it'll kill you. Right. So the thing is to get a wellness perspective, we don't have the developmental steps uh, figured out yet. So that's part of what I'm trying to do in my book. But it's not about the other people. I mean, excuse me, but I'm just saying, who cares? The point is, what am I doing? and we need to move forward. Otherwise, we're picking that skin up. And the other thing is, it's not then a wellness program. If somebody stands in the podium and barks at you, Bob, just remember, you're just a sick alcoholic, that's not a recovery program. If I'm 38 years into something, and I'm still a sick something, something's wrong. That's not a recovery program. That's illness maintenance.
1: That makes a lot of sense. That makes a lot of sense. And uh, yeah, you're right, you're right. It shouldn't be about anybody else. It should be about me and my program, and it stops there. And if it's something that I want to continue doing, great. And if it's not, then I need to make a decision to to make changes in my life. It's as simple as that.
0: Now, did you feel, because I have, it's really interesting in terms of writing a book, I have felt sort of like of this feeling of, like I don't want to be the lady who disses AA, and they say, well... She stopped going and me. started talking about this stuff. And at 45 years, she drank and got crazy. I don't want to be that lady. There are all these cautionary tales, right? In the program that scare us, right? Well, I don't. So in other words, I had to face that. Like I, I had to be willing to step out and say what my therapist said to me 25 years ago. You're not, you're going to too many meetings and receive the wrath of people, you know, coming back at me in a way so that's where i saw the fact that i had like a fear based relationship to aa too like right. do i have this or don't i and is it what it, like do i have this relationship with my higher power or don't i because the 12th step says having had a spiritual awakening as the result of these steps is very clear and it's in the past perfect tense having had a relationship so that means now we move out from here we're not telling you to go back to stage one recovery. we're telling you exactly what you said earlier. It's about service Well, I
1: think it's all a matter of perspective. This is a perspective that that you have, and you know you've written a book based on your experience, which is a great thing to segue into, yeah, which is the book and where it came about because it sounds like a lot of you know what your studies have done or or where you, you know, where you ultimately landed to start writing this book is because you saw a different way of recovering, correct?
0: And I'll I'll tell you, the reason I actually finally sat down to write the book was one of my congregants in New York City said, Look, you can teach so many things, but what we want to know is what works for you. And I said, Oh, well that's easy. It's the 12 steps, plus all of these other interspiritual body-mind spirit tools. I've applied over the years at each level, developmental level. And she said, write that. We need that. So honestly, that's why I wrote it. (laughs) In writing it, I realized, I mean, I, I, I had been drawing a lot of diagrams of the 12 steps, the chakra system, the Kabbalah, Seferat, Eric Erickson's Eight Ages of Man, Maslow's Hierarchy of Needs. All of these, de- all of these different developmental systems. I had been drawing these things in bright colored markers for years, because I was working out the idea of wow, these are all developmental models. So in other words, you have to do step one before you can do step two. And you know, we in AA we talk about uh, stools and bottles, sex, security, society, whatever it is. The bottom three steps uh, really set us up for a lifetime of sobriety. So I'm thinking, boy, there's really a correlation between all these developmental models so I had been looking at that idea for a long time and really teaching from it um, in classes and with people I counseled and also from the pulpit because I, I spoke a lot I'm like every Sunday but, <laughs> um, but I was teaching it but I I wasn't putting it into a whole system I would say yeah you know these are all developmental systems and I was so interested in learning then because I went to seminary after I had a long and very fruitful career as an actor, but um, I I was kind of, you know, for many reasons it was time for me to evolve onward. I was really wanting to get into some more, uh, some deeper work, and I ended up going to graduate school, which was fantastic, so I earned both a master's and a doctorate from Claremont School of Theology, and I'll tell you, I learned (laughs) a lot there, And, and a lot of it helped put this in perspective. I did a paper on uh, William James, the 12 steps and the mind cure movement toward a 20, 20th, 20th century, pluralistic religious movement. I was really trying to work all this stuff out because I knew, I think a lot of us in the 12 step programs really want to say, wow, I wish everybody could get these. I mean, these are such great steps and they're really wide open to help you grow. Um, Right. Just kind of trying to explore it as a as a spiritual path, explore it as a religious path. So I was doing a lot of work on this. I was looking at, at the Jesus teachings from the Nag Hammadi scrolls, um, which are very different from what ended up making it in the Bible. And we studied those at Claremont and um, really looking at wisdom texts and seeing how, wow, these are really – these 12 steps really open you up to a whole deeper teaching – and then looking sort of sort of sociologically at it. So there, you know, I have some of the chapters are a spiritual hunger, a country spir- spirals into addiction. I talk about the situation post-World War II. Um in the country when a lot of addicts were really born, Um, then God in the 12 steps, 12 steps as wisdom text. Jesus in the 12 steps, community in the 12 steps, and understanding the 12 steps as spiritual practice. So that's like the whole beginning of the book. And it's really kind of the contextualizing of like seeing the 12 steps from a lot of different angles, and and I had been drawing these things forever. So the book is beautiful. You could eat this book. It's so pretty. <laughs> <laughs> and that's where I get into gateway e- essences because people said, okay, show us how you practiced this. So the whole second half of the book is the gateways. And those are, I call it a bento box of, of mind, body, spirit tools. So it's, it's in two halves.
1: There's the, there's the th- what, the theological version of it?
0: Well, the beginning, it's not theological. It's really, as I said, so it's sociological, and it talks about different views of God. There's a whole section where I show the different paths to God, Islam, Christianity, Shinto, Buddhism, and, you know, there are many paths to God. Yogananda, who I studied for many years, used to say, pick a path, any path, and go deeper. And so a lot of people think you can only go, get into the steps through Christianity. That's not accurate, you know, so... So I get into a lot of interspiritual possibilities. It's not really theological. It's really, I'm just saying, look, I see that all of these are in some way related to how the steps work. I see them as a wisdom path. And so you we do, like you said, you know exactly what to tell people if they're looking to get sober for the first time. And me too. Right. Go to AA, do ninety meetings in ninety days, work the steps. hmm Okay. I, I used to say that I saw this as sort of a trapdoor. At step 11, it's like people say, you know, like they get a relationship with God as we understand God. Well, you know, a lot of people are, and to speak to exactly what you said before, too, a lot of people are cramming this kind of fundamentalist religious thing down people's throats now. That's not AA. If you look at really in the big book, <laughs> it says, and this is like one of my favorite things, and I would say this is what it's based on. They say, this is the founders who wrote this in the big book. To us, The realm of spirit is broad, roomy, all-inclusive, never exclusive or forbidding to those who earnestly seek. It is open, we believe, to all. That's what the founders say. It's beautiful. Yeah, and so that's what the book's about. It's about helping people find some more access to that because now, as you know, you go, wow, these guys were enlightened. Well, I think they were like, it was a channel. They were channels. And by the way, my dad was in AA from four years before I was born until he died. He died sober when I was 16. And I talk about it in the book. He, I loved AA. My father taught. I mean, he spoke all over the country. He was very charismatic and stuff. And, and he loved AA. He taught me all about kind of the basics. He sent me um, psycho-cybernetics when I was 11 years old. And I'm trying to... Sigmund Freud and his at his apartment, my parents were divorced. I mean, I was tu- tuned into this stuff really early. I never thought AA was gonna be my thing, but I loved AA. So I I really watched it transform my dad and and so I am a big I love AA. I just I don't love fundamentalism.
1: right. I got I see where you're at. Now the book itself, how yeah. digestible is it for someone,
0: So digestible at at going back to the fact you could eat it, as I said. But I think it's very digestible. I mean, you can get it on Amazon, you're kind of far, far away, or I would send you one. But I think you should get one. It's beautiful. And it's so easy to digest. The second half is really about practices. And the first half, see, one of the things that's happened since the book came out on September 27th is that a lot of people are interested in the practices in the second half, but not in the underpinning of how I see these things as part of the whole 12-step experience. And so what I'm trying to do is say, the second half is just a bunch of spiritual practices, and sure, you can use them, but I don't care about them out of the context of how they support the 12 steps.
1: Got it. So it leads into the second half of the book. The beginning is the different avenues of spirituality uh, that you've delved into. You've gone further.
0: Kind of set, Yeah, kind of setting up the thing. It's kind of like saying what happened post-World War II. All these guys came back from the military and, uh, you know, suddenly women and people. It, it, there's a whole sociological thing about how people ended up isolated from the extended family and mother's little helpers were a big part of convincing women they wanted to stay in their houses by themselves and, you know, you know, they started taking pills, and men were drinking three martini lunches, and there was a whole setup. So I talk kind of about the sociology of it, and
1: the first part of your book could be considered almost uh, a religious class or uh, spiritual, not religious, not religious. Uh, I, I want to stay away from that term. What would you What would you classify it as? Spiritual enlightenment?
0: In graduate, in kind of you know academia, they talk about to, they talk about theory and praxis, P R A X I S. All these big words, but so praxis means how do you make the thing work practically? So I would say the first half of my book is theory, and the second is praxis. You know, um, and so the first step gives you a lot of ways of I. I the one somebody who's a big fan of my book has about a thousand uh markers you know little red blue yellow markers on the side she said this is a book you go back to and back to somebody else who reviewed it actually said wow this is like louise hayes you can heal your life this is a book you want to carry around and you'll go back to for your whole year yeah so the first half is um you know, it's really, uh, yeah, it's a setup for the second half and the second half you can, you can practice. Can I read you just an intro that I did a note to my dad? Of course. I grew up in a sea of conversations about alcohol, but where no one drank, with people whose lives had all been impacted by the negative effects of the drug. My dad was an AA, an active, charismatic, excited member who spoke to early conventions and worked with others from two years before my birth until his death from smoking when I was 16. My maternal grandmother was a lifetime member of the Women's Christian Temperance Union, And her family had endured tragedy in Ireland for generations because of alcohol. I watched my dad change from a newly sober person with anger issues into a spiritual seeker, someone who won the top award for sales in his international company, stood on his head every day, introduced me to metaphysics, astrology, Dale Carnegie's How to Win Friends and Influence People, the complete works of Sigmund Freud and The Prophet by Khalil Gibran, all before I was 16. I saw sobriety work. I had no clue I would end up hitting my own bottom and becoming a 12-step person. But once I figured it out, my role model for a sober life was my dad. And he was a movie star to me. One of the last things he shared with me before he left the planet was his understanding about God. We were in Colorado on vacation, and he showed me a book by Emmett Fox and and The Little Red Book of AA and The Prophet by Khalil Gibran. One month later, he had a heart attack, and even though he had been advised not to do his yoga in the hospital, he insisted, and probably that headstand was not a great idea. But really what a way to go Eddie Galloway I love you you gave me life and you showed me a way to live it I hope this book pays the gift forward and makes you proud wherever you are doing headstands these days love Janie
1: oh man that's absolutely beautiful absolutely beautiful
0: so that's that's really the that's the reason I wrote it that's who I wrote it I mean that's it so I'm yeah. Kind of paying it forward for people because he showed me options that I don't hear a lot of people talking about in terms of the spiritual path that's available.
1: Emmett Fox is is, uh, is one of the first books that uh, my sponsor introduced me to outside the fellowship, uh, and so there is there is definitely so many different paths to spirituality. And I think it's also very important not to be rigid about anything. That, that yeah. the world is such this vast open opportunity for learning and growing. Um, and if you close yourself off, then you miss opportunities to grow as a human being and uh, as a spiritual being as well.
0: Yeah, I agree. I agree. You know, don't. Here's the thing. Well, like when my in back in the olden days when my dad was getting sober and stuff. I mean, they. None of those guys and women, there were a few women, but they were so grateful to die sober, frankly. I mean, he was sober almost 20 years, but, but that was a long time in those days. And, and now people are getting sober younger and, and many are, and, yes. then, and then what happens also is people are living longer. First of all, well, first of all, we're not totally beating ourselves up and killing ourselves with alcohol and drugs. So we get healthier, but also, the general lifespan has, has really gotten longer. So now what's happening is we need to start talking about what is the next developmental level into exactly what you're saying. Keep growing, but it scares us, right? Because people are like, wait a minute, wait a minute. I don't want to let go because this thing saved my life. sounds like it saved yours too. So we want to figure out how do we keep the tether to this thing that's so important and, and meaningful to us, and also help people to continue growing. We have provided a great model in the twelve. I mean, the twelve steps. I think they were channeled from uh, the cosmos, really. And I'll see- <laughs> I agree. Yeah. So so and <laughs> totally. Was, I have a pamphlet that was my dad's, um, and it, it was an early AA. I have a, several of them. They're very cool, and one of them is called "Why Were We Chosen." I mean, they didn't mince words then. It's like, you know, because and, and truthfully, and I talk about this in the book, too, I tell my own story in one chapter. But like, if you had told me the day before I ended up in AA that I was going to be sober the next day, I would have thought you were, you know, nice idea, but unlikely. Yeah, right. And I had full awakening in my apartment. I mean, my first love came over and told me. He, I mean, we had we were separated and we were friends, but we were kind of semi talking about, are we together? Are we not together? And then he told me he was gonna be dating this woman and blah, blah. Anyway, he came over for dinner and told me he was marrying her. And I was just like, oh my God. I mean, it was like, you know, it, that was kind of like the last loss. And um, he left after we had dinner and I had been drinking all night. And ah, you know, I, it was, I had this con going with myself anybody who's an addict relates to this, I think, but I mean, the point is I used to like pretend like I, w- I would call it reading, but the book could have been upside down. I mean, I was drinking and lying in bed, you know, but so I, I like, but I was in that thing of being stone cold sober and I had drunk almost a fifth of uh, scotch. So I'm lying in bed. I'm, I'm drinking Courvoisier brandy with this book in front of me. And I just was like, I had this moment of just total existential void. I was more alone. Uh, Suddenly I saw this circle of isolation around me. Like I wasn't, like I had pushed the last person out. All these people had tried to be in my life from my family, from blah, 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 all this. And Rick was kind of it. He was the last. So I suddenly had this moment. I mean, really, I never, ever want to experience that again. And this is one reason I think bottoms are important. But anyway. Yes. Yeah, because you got whatever. So and I talk about it in the book that I've experienced my bottom more as a trampoline than a, this rock bottom idea of breaking all your bones. I mean, this moment, though, I never want to go back there. And 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 so I had this uh, this awful thing. And then literally... The light changed in the room. So I did have one of those Bill Wilson mountaintop experience things. And 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 I heard this voice that said, it's over. It's the drinking. And see, I had gone to some AA meetings six months before, but I, I went in there and I was like, oh my God, they're talking about all that? I mean, because they were talking about uh, amphetamine too. And I was like in denial to myself even that I took diet pills, but I did every day. So I was like, "Oh my God, there's no way. There's just no way I can do that." <laughs> so I listened and but I had a meeting book and I had stashed it in the uh, drawer in my living room and so I had this thing it's over, it's the drinking. I got out of bed. I went in there and of course I knew exactly where it was <laughs> and I got the meeting book out and I just so that was and the next day I went to my first meeting and I was starring in a very successful. Uh, off-Broadway play called Vanities. It was a huge hit in New York at the time. So I got sober while doing eight shows a week in front of audiences. I don't know. Uh, You know, as I look back, it's a miracle. But I had a divine intervention, if you will.
1: Well, I'll tell you what. uh, Can we do this? Now that we have an idea of basically how the why the book evolved in the first place, uh, at this stage, I'd like to talk about your story. Uh, Would you be willing to tell us your story? Yeah, like I want to hear the the story that you tell, uh, if you were to share your story at a meeting as a as a as a speaker.
0: Yeah. Okay. I just told you I had drunk a fifth of alcohol and I was still stone cold sober. So that's part of it. So clearly, nobody does that who doesn't have a fairly progressed. Uh, drinking story. But I, um, yeah, I grew up in the family, like I read to you, where everybody talked about alcohol, nobody drank it. So everybody was basically an untreated Al-Anon, very uptight. But, you know, I, I intervened on a domestic violence incident between my parents when I was 18 months old, I called out, don't hurt my mommy. Now, a lot of kids aren't even talking at 18 months old. Uh, I intervened it broke the spell it stopped the thing my mother left the next day we never went back it was devastating i my grandmother told me i cried for 2 weeks now we know and so over all these years i have said something was wrong with my i knew my brain was broken now we know about trauma and that so many of us are medicating trauma by alcohol, which and drugs, which is like genius. We are geniuses that we manage to live with this terrible trauma. But so that was when I was 18 months old. That's very young to be intervening.
1: <laughs> Absolutely. And,
0: so, and I talk about it all of it in the book. But anyway, so um, yeah, so so uh my mother We married when I was six. We had a lot of moves, a lot of traumas. I went through a horrible custody suit between my parents when I was nine years old. Another unbelievable trauma. I mean, some awful stuff. And um, I was so proud. I mean, God, I wish I had known there was something like alcohol around. I mean, I was I was I remember telling my mother when I was nine, you know, I think I'm depressed. And she kind of laughed at me derisively and said, you're too young to be depressed. Well, now we know kids kill themselves. Right. You know, kids are cutting themselves. They're killing themselves. We have a terrible problem with young kids who are traumatized or in foster care, going through all kinds of stuff. So I'm a huge advocate for kids, you know. Um, but anyway, so yeah, so a lot of divorces. And then my father, I mean, my my stepfather left my mother. But this September of my senior year in high school, my father this dad who read all this stuff to me and taught me about sobriety and was really kind of my hero and my lifeline. My father had a massive coronary and died overnight. And so I, I got out there. I lived with my mother and stepfather in Pennsylvania. I got on the plane. They had told me, come out here. He's still alive. And I got to the hospital right after he had died and they, and I screamed out. They said, your, your daddy is gone. And I screamed, and this nurse grabbed me and took me into this little room in the hospital and shot me up with Librium. So I just found out my dad died. I'm 16 years old. (laughs) And really, in one way or another, I did not draw a sober breath from that moment on. Oh, wow. Librium and then they had my friend, my childhood friend was following me around with Librium and other things to keep every time she starts to come out of it, give her one of these. So I went through the whole funeral. And and really what alcoholism educators now know is that most of us are suffering from chronic unresolved grief when we come into sobriety. So I sure was. I mean, my whole childhood was traumatic, uh, one incident after another. And I, I look back on it. I'm amazed I made it. I mean, I was very active in high school, and popular, a cheerleader, all these things. In life. I mean, it's unbelievable. But I was always battling whatever this thing was. And I used to say, I think my brain is broken. Well, you know what it was? I've, had, I've done a lot of great treatments since then, somatic, experiencing various techniques. And that's another conversation. But anyway... I, start, I went to college and um, that was in the late 60s and almost 1970. And I, you know, I was a terrible drinker. My very first time I drank, I blacked out. I ended up throwing up all over my roommate's fur coat and <laughs> at his fraternity and whatever. I mean, it was just awful. So my thing was to try to take drugs. I wanted out. You know, I wanted out here. I'm grieving. My father's dead. My stepfather's leaving my mother. My life's falling apart. And I'm trying to it through my freshman year in college. So I learned about a lot of different drugs. I moved to New York to be an actress. And honestly, now I don't think this is like a normal way to think, but when, so this is where my alcoholic thing came in. I was, we were in our first apartment, my roommate and I, and she went out of our apartment in New York city. She went out and she, and we had smoked some dope, which made me always so paranoid. It was like, why was I smoking this stuff? I hate it. But you know anyway so she comes running back in and she said oh my god i just saw somebody killed and i was like what and so my reaction so here's the thing you might react like oh um yeah we should call the police or blah 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 whatever it was, or was call my mother call somebody my thing was like i have got to learn how to drink that was my very first thought honestly and truthfully <laughs> right. Hello. So I just knew I can't be this paranoid and hear things like this. And I really want to be in New York and really want to have an acting career. So I've got to find the right medication. So I, I went about, I, I used to not be able to, I was a, you know, terrible drinker, um, because I would drink, I'd get, I was, I, I mean, I could hold a lot, but I really now know that I went into blackout almost instantly. So people had this whole version of me. I'd be like, "Ooh, yeah, I have no idea what they're talking about," <laughs> because I had done and said and been whatever right. in my blackout, you know. So yeah, but so I was pretty much a daily. I was a daily drinker. I, I like to. I guess I've heard people say this. I, I think this applies to me: daily drinker, periodic drunk. But I was pretty much a daily drunk. But I was also auditioning and doing all this stuff and getting jobs weirdly. So, um, yeah, so I started, I I had a very high tolerance at the beginning and that, which a lot of us do. And then it started to get kind of strange. Um, but I was, I was very focused on my acting career. I had early success, which is both a blessing and a curse. I had no, I didn't know how to handle it. Right. People were like, you know, we were on page six. The play was called Vanities. It was Kathy Bates, Susan Merson, and me. It was written for the three of us to do. As you know, Kathy's gone on to, you know, win the Academy Award and a bunch of stuff. But the three of us did this play and, and then it like blew up overnight. It was a huge hit and people were following us down the streets. We we're in the papers, we we're in the, pra- and honestly, it, it freaked me out. I didn't know how to deal with it. And so when I see Sean Penn attack a photographer, I totally get it. <laughs> it's frightening. Yeah. Especially because they don't even – anyway, I mean, they don't even know why they're coming at you. It's like, um, I saw you. Okay. Well, like not you were great in the movie or you are great in the – so anyway, I, I really – I began – like a routine, and you asked me earlier about a day, daily thing. I can tell you what my daily thing was when I like the six months before I got sober. I had a wonderful relationship with this person I mentioned and and finally, he was really cramping my drinking style, I gotta say. by this time, I was mostly only drinking. but I was also taking amphetamines too, because you got to be skinny as an actor.
1: Uh, yeah.
0: Also no, I was medicating. you know I have a bit of ADHD and I was medi- we are geniuses. We are like pharmacologists. We're medicating ourselves. My thing was I want to be an actress. And my anxiety was so off the charts. And this cocktail I would put together for myself worked. I mean, it really did. It really worked until it didn't, you know.
1: Right, of course.
0: Yeah, and so he started – you know my play took off and that wasn't thrilling to him but also you know my drinking was really escalating and he was um you know we had that dinner that silent conversation of you know we'd have wine with dinner and then he would put the cork in the bottle and I would take the cork out of the bottle and it became this thing of like starting to hide alcohol and you know the whole deal I mean And plus the thing, being a woman alcoholic, and this is what I do talk about a lot at meetings, is just totally uncool. I mean, you can dress it up however you want, but there's like a mythology like the beer drinking, Super Bowl watching guy, whatever. There is a mythology that makes drinking okay for men. I mean, it's not okay, but it's not awful. And like, you know, women, sloppy, drunk women in blackouts doing and saying things they don't remember the next day, that's totally not cool. Right. So you're doing that double dance, you know, in three inch heels, by the way, you know, (laughs) trying to pull it off. But um, yeah. So uh, and so meantime, all this time, I'm I'm covering up all this grief. And, And I left I left my my significant other and I moved back into the city. We had moved to Brooklyn. I moved back into the city. And by this time, I'm doing a lot of TV commercials, making a pretty good living and doing the show eight shows a week. So I would, like, wake up in the morning. I would pop some speed. And the reason I say pop it is by this time I had to really hustle to get this drug that no longer is on the market. But I would break the capsule open and I'd, like, you know, take as much as I thought I needed. I'd wake up totally hungover, take that, go back to sleep, and then I'd, boing, wake up and, like, pretend to myself that I was perky this perky girl. (laughs) And I was like, so this thing of the right hand, not knowing what the left hand is doing is just so weird for us because we're like conning ourselves just to keep the thing going. But, um, anyway, yeah. So I would pop speed and then I go out to these auditions and I would shoot commercials. I would, uh, I mean, big commercials for big, you know, like I did cheer, McDonald's, blah, 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 lots and lots of commercials. And that was great. I mean, that was, it was fun and it was also lucrative, you know. And then I would then at about four o'clock in the afternoon, I would eat dinner because I had to be at the theater by seven for half hour. And uh, so I'd eat dinner. And actors kind of know how to take care of themselves. So I would eat something with a lot of protein in it, and blah blah blah. Meantime, I'm drinking like all these things like pep up, which is this drink with brewers yeast. You know. <laughs> anyway, so trying to stay healthy. <laughs> <laughs> and then. So I'm drinking this awful pep up thing and then doing that, having dinner, going to the theater for half hour, doing the show. And then I had this thing. So now by the time the show came down and thank God, our stage manager was alcoholic too. I mean, now that I, Oh God. But anyway, there was a bar at the theater and, and so we'd go in, we would do the show, all three acts, blah, blah, blah. And then at, at the minute the show was over, I'd go back to the dressing room and this stage manager would bring me a martini A vodka martini with one olive in it every night. And God forbid something should happen that he didn't get it there because I would freak out. And what I now know is that that was my cycle. I was starting to detox. Mm. I needed that drug that minute. I needed the alcohol. And then we would walk. But we again, we dressed it all up. And, you know, and we would I would walk from the theater to the theater bar where a lot of Broadway actors and everybody hung out. Uh, With my martini in my hand, and then I'd drink and uh, go home about 3 a.m. when the bar is closed. And I did that every day. Um, We had one day off, and I usually was recovering (laughs) on Mondays. And then you heard the end of my story, uh, which was me being in in that apartment. By that time, my tolerance had totally changed. So I could be drinking all day long and be totally in my, like, not drunk which is like the worst. That's the worst. Yeah. You know, like I just drank a fifth of scotch and I'm not, you know, Tennessee Williams, the playwright calls it that click in the head. Like that click in the head happens like, oh, thank God. Okay. Well, the click in the head never happens. So you're like, oh my God, you know what? So that I could do that or, and this was equally bizarre and frightening. I could have like two sips of, of wine or something. I mean I drank vodka toward the end, but um wine too and I could have like two sips of wine and I would be literally staggering down the street. So now I know that I've done all this studying and learning about the physiological effects. I mean that's when you know your your progression is really happening. The physical progression is happening.
1: Right so now it was, go ahead.
0: My best friend was no longer predictable.
1: Right, right. Now, there was a part in your story, uh, or in the beginning when we started talking, where you said that LSD saved your life. Yeah. Okay. What, what? Tell us that, you know, what was that all about?
0: Well, I was in college, and LSD was being used, uh, you know, my boyfriend in college was um, it, it introduced, I mean, he's a jazz musician, and a very successful one to this day, and a great friend. But we were, you know, he introduced me to some of these drugs, including, um, LSD, which honestly, uh, all right. So I told you, I went to college and I'm like in all this grief, my father had just died. My stepfather's leaving the family. I am, uh, just, just lost, 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 lost. And then all this stuff from my whole childhood is starting to gang up on me. <laughs> so, um, Alcohol, I told you I'm a terrible drinker. So, I mean, I'm trying to drink and it was really not cool. I didn't want anything that made me out of control. You know, that's what I didn't like. I mean, I didn't want to be like, you know, in that kind of situation, I wanted to get out of the, I was trying to treat anxiety and grief. I now know that that's really what I, so it didn't work for me then because I would get so, so, so drunk and I, uh, you know, it just didn't work for me. So, uh, my boyfriend suggested, he told me he was doing LSD and blah, blah, blah. It, you know, I don't even remember that it scared me that much. Everybody was doing everything in the, those days. And I'm glad that I didn't do everything,
1: <laughs> Right.
0: but you know, because there were a lot of everything's that have gotten people really, really sick. And, and, and there's always a risk if you do a psychogenic drug like that. I mean, who knows, but I had such anxiety and grief and the first time we did a trip, it it. I mean, I think you mentioned these words earlier that a friend of yours said that ayahuasca for her was a game changer. Yes. I mean, it was like, oh, my God. Well, you know what? It was like that broad, roomy, uh, never exclusive, all-inclusive realm the founders of AA talk about. And by the way, Bill Wilson, so we talked about it, he was doing LSD. So he got it that that realm existed. Anyway, so… Yeah. So we dropped acid and I had this amazing, I had one revelation after another. And it's very hard when you come back from that kind of experience to put words to it. Mm -hmm. So what I can tell you is that I realized that some of the very rigid thinking of my childhood, my grandparents and stuff around sex, around body, around a few of those things completely left me. It was like, wait a minute, this is all a part of what a person is. This, oh, wait, I see it differently. It doesn't sound as cataclysmic from this perspective <laughs> as it was then, but quite frankly, it changed my life. Then I knew that there, whatever that place was, it did something to, it's interesting because I've never really tried to put this into words for somebody. So it, it, helped my depression, it, it, it opened something in me that helped me to survive through the next few years, um, long enough to get to New York and start that whole other journey that now that, but I told you about going to New York and, you know, my roommate and all that anyway. Yeah. But part of the important things about drugs, one of the important things about drugs is set and setting so a drug, like I, Jay, ta- Jay, my boyfriend taught, we would always have a very care, you know, we'd have it be really a nice, safe setting. Um, there was nothing that be could be potentially psychologically alarming.
1: Right. It'd
0: be great music, nice lighting, good food. You're not going to be driving on the freeway, like, tripping on ass. I mean, you know, we set it up so that it was a whole experience. And when I went to New York, so I tripped maybe three times
1: okay and each time and each time you had I guess what we would call a relief. spiritual experience
0: relief and expansion of consciousness
1: okay yes That's
0: how I would put it I don't think I even in those days I would have called it a spiritual experience but I said it same it was relief and an expansion of consciousness okay yeah. So then, then, but with the set and setting thing. When I moved to New York, my friend from college, who had done some, she was part of these trips, uh, brought some to New York. And now I'm living in Manhattan, which you know has a lot of energy going on there. And we we tripped, and it was not a, it was awful. We used to love going to the grocery store tripping because it was like, oh wow, look at all those, and because things, what happens? I don't know if you've had the experience, but some of the molecules and things seem to show themselves to you. So, in other words, you look at a tree and you can see the living, you can see the life in the tree. You mm-hmm. can see, you can see the tree breathing. You yeah. can see, you can see the organism giving off energy. You can so, and even in so-called inanimate objects, we now know from quantum physics that everything has. Um, you know, everything resonates. I mean, you can talk to your computer and say, please, you know, stay healthy or whatever. I mean, you can talk to things and it changes the molecules and the wonderful, um, S. a moto or what is the man's name who did the wonderful work on water, that if you would put water in a bottle and say a beautiful word, then they could look at the molecules and the crystals of that water and they would be different based on the vibration you gave it. And that's wonderful work. So you could see all that. So it was a very friendly world and filled with life and um, uh, everything was really alive and alive in a good way. I mean, I do remember one incident where somehow I ended up (laughs) in a situation with some of my colleagues in the theater department and we, I don't know what happened. There was a visiting professor and I was tripping. And so they said, Jane, join us in the red carpet. The red carpet was the snack bar. And I was thinking like, oh, no. But I didn't really know how to get out of it. So I went with them, and I'm being very quiet, and I'm sitting with this visiting professor and two other actors. And I remember sitting there. Like the red carpet was exactly this, brown booths and red carpet. So I'm looking around this place, and it was like, wow, all these colors and all these things were just, you know, like, so I, there's like a little lull in the conversation. And I said, wow, you know, I never noticed how colorful the red carpet was. <laughs> <laughs> and
1: there you're off.
0: And the guy, well, the guy sitting next to me, Michael, I can't remember his last name, but anyway, he he said, be cool, Jane, be cool. <laughs> It was obvious I was seeing something the rest of them weren't, but that was a very relaxing place to be in that realm where things were colorful and moving, and you really see the dynamic universe. That's the quantum field, I think.
1: So, the expansion, right? The the what yeah. you were talking about earlier, your
0: um... expansion consciousness and relief
1: then I you know that is something that, that is that is truly interesting because I think that there, there's a lot of answers that lie outside of us that we that we can only connect with under certain conditions. Um but of course, you know, you have to be very careful.
0: Right. And so this is the thing about meditation. I mean I, I used to study with a genius man in New York named Eric Butterworth, who was a, a teacher of metaphysics and for about ten years in my early sobriety and he used to say, he talked about acid once. I mean he was a very conservative guy. It was so funny to hear him talk about it. But he said he, he said, you know, it's not that the insights you have on LSD are not are not real. He said, it's that you can't when you come down, you don't have any way of reaching that peak experience again. And then he said prayer and meditation actually create that staircase
1: got it got it got it got it got it it. okay all right
0: that's cool and so that's how i said and i think honestly now that i'm telling you i think that's how i started thinking when he gave me that you're helping me realize something here that's when i started getting the idea of this thing of the steps as a staircase because they really are a stair a staircase to higher consciousness
1: yes absolutely Uh, i think that that is And and it's one of the reasons why I've I've always said, and many of us have always said, you know, anyone and everyone can benefit from the 12 steps. It's not just, it's not just alcoholics and addicts.
0: Right. right. So, see, that's the part. And I say in the beginning, okay, like, I get it. You can't have a spiritual awakening for anybody else after, like, years of trying. I, I get it. And also, I'm not sure... we all, any of us who are tuned into this are trying to let people know this, right? And so this book I've written is, is for people recovering from anything, really, I would have to say. But here's the deal. I wonder, and I'd be interested in your take on this too. I wonder, we have to go through some rigorous stuff to really benefit from the steps. We have to go through the ego reduction, the turning our will and our lives over the care of God as we understand God, blah, blah. And then we have to go inside, making a searching and fearless inventory, sharing that with another person, then turning that over, then making amends. I don't know if people who don't have the imperative of like chronic addiction would go that distance. What do you think?
1: Mm, I hadn't thought about that. That's a great point. That is a great point. Yeah, like unless you have hit what we call that rock hard bottom where that gift of desperation where yes. we're willing to do anything yes. and everything that is suggested to us. Yes. If the if the if the hit isn't hard enough or if the loss isn't big enough, then maybe we're not as willing to to be as fearless uh, yeah. You know, and and as, as 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 introspective as some of us who you know. So I remember at, when you know when I first came in, I had lost my wife, I'd lost my business. You know, I I had I was in really bad shape. So it wasn't as though I was clinging on to very much. You know, my what? ego was crushed. So mm-hmm. so I was willing. So yeah, that that's an interesting point. I'd never even thought about that. You know what would happen if you're you're trying to introduce this to someone who feels pretty good. You know, I, I, I'm pretty good for the most part.
0: <laughs> well, well, I'm still the, the these social things are still working for me, even though I'm yeah. So so in other words, this may be you know honestly, this may be our gift to the universe.
1: <laughs> <laughs> or from,
0: and then and, and, and then we don't. Then uh, you know maybe not everybody gets... I don't know. I I because I really. I have now spent the last six months trying to explain this work to people. You understand it better than anyone I've spoken to. I'm just going to tell you right now. It's a pleasure to talk to you. Oh, thank you. <laughs> so, so I want to tell you that that I really, really appreciate that, that you really get it. But trying to explain this work to someone is extremely, extremely difficult.
1: Well, this is why I asked you in the begin. Well, as we were discussing the book and there was a lot of information coming my way, and I'm trying to compartmentalize it as we're we're having the discussion. And I'm thinking, how digestible is it going to be for someone who's early in recovery, for example? So is is this something that you would recommend to someone in early in sobriety? Or is it something more yeah. like... See,
0: part, of the, part of the thing that I spent so much time doing, and that's why I'm going to send you a copy and we'll talk again.
1: Awesome. Beautiful. <laughs> I,
0: I, I went through a lot of... Um, effort and spent a lot of money making it visually very easy to access. So what a friend of mine who looked at it, she said, wow, you unpack a lot of complicated ideas, but you make it very accessible. Great. So the formatting and the illustrations and the whole way it's presented is designed to make it something you pick up and go, wow, I can get that. Now, honestly, I think it's a lot of information. And what my next thing is to figure out is how do I put together a seminar for people based on kind of a core journey through this thing? Okay. So they can access the work because I don't want them to go, wow, it's great. Because yes, the thing is, I think new, I think I would have been very receptive to this early on, but I, I'm not saying this is not a replacement for anything. I think the basic thing for early recovery is the big book and the Correct. 12 and 12 mm-hmm. and the 12 and 12 and meetings and somebody you can talk to a sponsor, somebody who's, you know, not authoritarian, but who's helping you walk the walk and doing the steps, you know, going, doing the very basic re- recommended things, 90 meetings in 90 days. However, in my first 90 days, I was reading books on Zen healing, books on this, books on that, because I I was going through all this big cathartic stuff. I mean, I got really, really sick. I spoke on my 90 days, and I don't know. Honestly, I still don't know how I did this, but I spoke on my 90 days, and I smoked, and I smoked three quarters of a pack of Marlboro's. <laughs> in an hour and a half meeting. I have no clue how I did that. However, I may have loaned two, but beyond that, I was like, so I left the meeting and I was so sick. And I um, I had a terrible upper respiratory uh, well, a high fever. I mean, it just, it worked its way all the way through my body. And I talk about this in the book too. I, I thought I was dying and it was very, it went from the top to the bottom and I was just weeping and sobbing and saying goodbye to my, uh, my partner and goodbye to my father and goodbye to, I mean, it was like, it was all this grief was coming out. I read about it later in a Zen healing book and it described exactly what happened with this thing. And it said, if you, you're going to purge. Yeah. Every, that's
1: the word I was thinking too. I'm like, you were just purging.
0: But, but it said such an interesting thing. I it said, it, you're going to purge everything and then you're going to crave right when you come out of it you're going to crave some of the things that you've purged and if you don't eat them i was talking about physical eating stuff you will never crave them again so by that time by the time i had actually read that i had already had a hot fudge sundae and a steak so i was like oh well that's whoops (laughs) i missed the thing of that purge but um yeah but i I stopped smoking after that. And that was a miracle that was lifted from me. Well, uh, really, honestly, I I, I was a a pack and a half or two pack cigarette smoker a day. So after my 90 days, I also let go of smoking as part of this heavy duty catharsis thing. So I was doing a lot of research and working with people, um, different kinds of healers. I went to a healer, Right around that time, and she told me, and I talk about some of these in the book, like she said, okay, you need to get a lapis lazuli stone, put it in a glass of water and put it on your windowsill and let the sun and let the lapis properties infuse into the water for overnight for, you know, a whole day in the sun. And then the next day drink the water. So I was again, see, again, we're talking about being sweetly reasonable, like, I don't know if regular people who aren't just desperate, are going to do this stuff. <laughs> but I did And I got better. So I'm trying out. So that's why I include gemstones. And I tell some of these rituals. But I was he- seeking out this stuff from like day one. And by the way, I was like a total agnostic, mad at God. My life had not turned out right mm-hmm. from day before I got sober. And the minute that light came into my room, I was on this insatiable search for God. I mean, it was like overnight. My, you know, my, I still am really good friends with one, two people who were part of my life then. And I mean, the fact that they stayed in my life is a miracle because I had a total Uh, transformation. I really did. So it's like they had this friend who was mad at God and drinking a fifth of whatever a day and doing all this stuff. And suddenly I'm like rushing off to every (laughs) spiritual healing and teaching. So it was really pretty much, you know. Well, that's not the
1: first time I've heard this one either, because, you know, we we switch addictions all the time. And whether you want to call it switching addictions or repurposing, you know, or, or channeling or however it is, our energy levels and our intensity levels are through the roof. So when we're into something, we're into something. We're all in. So that's all, you know, for someone to say, yeah, I left, I, I went from drinking a fifth a day to, you know, diving into every type of, you know, spiritual or metaphysical book that I could get my hands on is not surprising. I don't think to any of us.
0: Interesting. Yeah. Right. I think that's right. I never thought of it as that. It was, yeah. I also think like I saw a film strip, um, years ago at an Anon conference and it it showed um this person looking upward kind of lying on a hillside and it said we were searching for spirit capital s through spirits small s and you know the big book talks about that our our addiction is a low level search for god
1: yes absolutely
0: it's interesting wording so in a way rather than an addiction what i kind of uh, the way i experienced it was that I? there was a place in me that was so empty. It was like if you let your gas tank get down to completely empty, you really have to fill it up. So that whole area of the spirit, I had been mad at God since my stepfather left our family. My father died, then Dick left, and I was like, I was furious. I was like, no God, and I talk about this in there too, no God, no good God could do this to good people.
1: No, 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 no. And and I think that, again, it parallels so many of the the story, my story, you know, you know, we have these traumatic uh, episodes in our lives where we walk away from God, the the whole concept of it, the whole ideology, the the practice, everything. Like this is yeah. not for me. I don't know what you know. Well, I, I don't know what's wrong with people, but this is not this is not the way I'm going to go. Um, and then you come into you know you you, you hit your rock bottom. And there's only one way, there's only, I mean, as far as I'm concerned, there's only one way, and that is to seek that spiritual connection that we've been lacking or searching for our whole lives, regardless of the traumatic experience that we've had.
0: Or because of it.
1: True. Yeah, absolutely.
0: Yeah. And so the rock bottom thing, I really see it, like, I see the bottom as a trampoline because I see like that, I had that bam, that that bright light experience, and the next day, I had been bounded into a whole new life. So I didn't spend much time down at the rock bottom. Uh, It's a semantic thing, but I think it's also a way of looking at it. I really see it as a place of tremendous fertility, you know, the bottom. Mm -hmm. When you plant something, the roots Mm -hmm. have to go down and, you know, break through the ground. You never see one thing above the ground. So I think the bottom for me was like a total, that was a place of fertility,
1: Right, right. Well, again, it, you know, as we're, as we're discussing this, it's all a matter of perspective. And yeah. however you view the world around you, there's, there's a book, the one by Chuck See, A New Pair of Glasses.
0: Yeah, which I love.
1: Yeah, we all do. It's a great book, especially yeah. in early recovery, because we all need a new pair of glasses there's a clarity that comes once you surrender, once once you purge yourself or let go of the alcohol and the drugs, you walk away from that. Then there's this whole new realm and this whole new, opp- all these new opportunities, and you can go in any direction that you want. And that's the beautiful thing about life yeah. out of, like you said, it's a springboard. Like I hit rock bottom, and I plant as this new seed, and now I'm emerging as this as this as this new and improved version of myself and the decision comes which way do i go because there's so many ways that i can take
0: so you know for me it was like i just it yeah right and i think that we are like the way i describe it is a little different that it's not i stopped making decisions i followed what was pulling me Mm. And what was pulling me was a very – so I wasn't anymore in the driver's seat. And when I went, I went to this meeting. I tell about this in the book too. It was like um, I went to a noon meeting at a place called The Mustard Seed. And meantime, I'm all dressed up trying to – you know. and I was like two – I was two days sober. Somebody had suggested that meeting to me at my first meeting the day before. So I went to the noon meeting, and I'm sitting in back, and I'm like drink. I'm just totally absorbing everything these people are saying – and, and toward the end of the meeting, the person leading the meeting, this man said, young lady, would you like to share something? So, meantime, how insane are we? So, the idea goes through my mind. Oh, all right. He must think I'm, like, here doing an article for the New York Times or something. Uh, no, honey, you're here. But anyway, so I thought, you know, I'm going to give him – I'm going to be polite and go up and, you know – so I was nervous, of course, and then I went to the front of this little room and I said, "My name's Jane, and I'm an alcoholic." For the first time, I didn't—I did not plan to say that, but I said it, and my whole life flashed before my eyes. This is for real. This is for real. It really happens. I work with people in hospice, and I know that they go through that experience frequently. We frequently, when people are transitioning to the next level without a body, but I had that experience and it couldn't have taken more than 30 seconds but honestly and truthfully my whole whole life everything flashed before my eyes and i forever after that i have said you know i had the same it was weird but i had the same social security number the same every name all that stuff but i had evolved into another dimension so it really wasn't like me pursuing something it was like i had died and in one in one incarnate, I had gone into a different incarnation. I think it's that deep. And the point is, I didn't direct anything. I did what I was told I was that broken. So I wasn't see again, that self will run riot thing. I dropped it totally after I got sober. And that maybe I don't know if that's a difference between men and women or whatever it is. But I was so sweetly reasonable. I was, (laughs) I was beaten. I, I was really beaten. So I followed directions. I did the steps. I did the steps because of such inner pain. These were all pain relief for me. This are a miracle.
1: It's, it's a beautiful thing that happens, especially in, in early recovery when these things start to happen. These uh, light bulb moments, these spiritual awakenings start to happen. And it comes through that absolute surrender. You know, when, when you know, the self will run riot, and we recognize that and you completely surrender to something greater than you, what, what however you chose to embrace that. Yeah. That's when it started to happen.
0: Well, yeah, it started to happen instantly, though. I think, you know, yeah, I think the real moment is, I, I agree with you, is really made a decision. And that's step three. Mm-hmm. The early thing is, you know, we, we're beaten. Step two is, you know, come to believe something bigger than us. Is out there, but really, the moment of you know really beginning launching into this thing we're talking about is really made a decision, and that's where it's key. We do have to make that decision. You're absolutely right. (laughs) Made a decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God as we understand God.
1: Yeah, and then the yeah, and the miracles just start to happen. All right, so Jane, we could do this for another two hours.
0: (laughs) Yeah, we've come.
1: Let's start. Listen, I want to wind down, though, but I have a few more things for you. Okay. So uh, what I like to do is I like to close the show for the newcomers. So I'm going to ask you five questions about your early recovery, and I want you to respond with inspiring answers you can share with our newcomers. Are you ready? Great. Let's do this. Okay, so number one, what was keeping you from getting clean and staying clean when you first got introduced to recovery?
0: Realizing that I needed to give up uh, amphetamine as well. That's really the truth.
1: <laughs> yeah. Okay. You're like, I'm ready to give him up the alcohol, but wait a minute.
0: <laughs> That's They're true. talking about this? No way. Yeah. So that was before early recovery. That was my first three meetings.
1: So you were still taking the amphetamines?
0: No, no, no. I was I was drinking and taking amphetamine. I went to an AA meeting. I heard my story actually. The guy was an actor. He had like so many of my experiences, but he also did diet pills. I couldn't believe it. I'm like, oh you're gotta be kidding me. I don't, I was not, I was lying to myself about taking those, let alone these people. But I, yeah, so there, so that was not recovery. I didn't stop drinking and I didn't, stop, I tried one day and I couldn't make it the whole day. So I went to three meetings and then I, in the next six months, I had, um, a lot of yet's I performed under the influence, which was nightmarish, which you know, I performed, uh, on stage in a major production under the influence. I had some really awful experiences in the next six months. And then, so so. what was keeping me from getting, I mean, I I didn't want to get sober. Who who does?
1: There you go. That's the answer. (laughs) It's the
0: answer. This was my best friend.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. So then number two, at what point did you have a spiritual awakening, that aha moment in recovery when you accepted that you were powerless over drugs and alcohol, but for the first time had developed the hope that you could recover?
0: My spiritual awakening is what is what got me sober. So they happened simultaneously. So a light came into the room. I was drunk or I had been drinking all night and the light came in the room and said, it's over. It's the drinking. And from that moment, I was propelled into another whole thing. So they were simultaneous.
1: Man, that is Awesome. Absolutely beautiful. That's something kind of like the Bill Wilson story. Yep. Exactly. Beautiful. All right. So, Jane, do you have a favorite book other than your own, of course?
0: Power Through – I'm sick of my own book. No, I love my book. I love my book. But I've never talked about a book so much in my life. So, um, you will love my book. But my favorite book is Emmett Fox's Power Through Constructive Thinking.
1: Beautiful. Beautiful. That's the first time that one's been uh, – been recommended because it's the other Emmett Fox book.
0: Sermon on the Mount. Sermon, yeah, on, Sermon the Mount. on the Mount.
1: That's the one that's always
0: I suggest it. It's, it's a bunch of Sermon on the Mount is in the the whole thing about the Beatitudes and stuff are in there. But you know Emmett Fox used to speak in New York City every Sunday for years and so these are all essays. They're all um, stuff that he said. They're great and they talk about the seven day mental diet about trying to switch your thoughts from positive to neg- negative to positive and there are a lot of really great things in there it's the basis you know and my dad gave it to me when i was a kid but i it's really still my favorite book it's what i give every my newcomer any but any newcomer person who actually is working with me in any way i, I give them that book along with the big book <laughs> I, mean, I suggest they get their own big book but i give them this one too
1: which one the emmett fox uh
0: power through constructive thinking yeah power
1: through, okay all right excellent all right so then number four What is the best suggestion you have ever received?
0: Keep coming back.
1: And number five, if you could give a newcomer only what suggestion, what would that be?
0: You know, I I pray for you that you have the courage to allow yourself to weather the emotional stuff of early sobriety because this is an opening into a totally new way of life that you will not believe. And so I just pray for you that you can get yourself through what feels like unbelievable hell and anguish when all this stuff is coming up so you can get to that moment when suddenly you realize oh my god my life is totally different so i just you know hope that you can i really pray that that you can hang in there
1: beautiful i love it i love it wow jane thank you so much for joining us today
0: Thank you so much. It's been a delight meeting you and talking to you about this. And I've had some really great realizations in the conversation. So You and me bold, sister. (laughs) All right. Thanks so much, Omar. It's wonderful.
1: All right. All right. So folks, we have now reached the end of our show. Thanks for joining us. And as we say here in Costa Rica.